0: welcome to hand therapy heroes the premier podcast on hand and upper extremity rehabilitation as a worldwide educator and developer of best in class hand therapy content susan weiss occupational therapist and certified hand therapist brings you an array of hand therapy specialists hand care solutions and more
1: Welcome to Hand Therapy Heroes. We're excited for today's episode with Dr. Christopher D., a board-certified orthopedic hand surgeon with subspecialty expertise in brachial plexus and peripheral nerve injuries. He has received training in brachial plexus and peripheral nerve injuries at leading centers in India, China, Taiwan, Thailand, and Sweden. Dr. D's research programs have two main areas of focus, improving delivery of care for patients with brachial plexus injuries and addressing disparities in access to orthopedic care. He has been published in 90-plus peer-reviewed articles and has co-edited the textbook, ASSH Surgical Anatomy Nerve Reconstruction. We're super fortunate to have him join us today for a discussion on nerve pathology and treatment. So, Dr. D, how did you decide to go into hand surgery?
0: Well, I really love the anatomy. Um, When I started my residency, I, I came out of medical school with a public health degree. And one of the things that always compelled me was to study delivery of care and health services research and access to care. Um, so with a public health degree and going into a top-notch orthopedics residency, I really thought that I was going to be a total joint surgeon and study how patients access hip and knee replacement, um, because those are some of the most uh, commonly consumed and, of course, uh, very successful surgeries we have in all of orthopedics and probably all of medicine. Um, so I really thought that was going to be my path. Um, but then I did my third year uh, rotation on the hand service and was inspired by, I, I mean, I just love the anatomy. I don't think I can explain it better than that. Um, the hand is challenging. Um, form and function are hand in hand. Nope, no pun intended, sorry. Um, but uh, to me, it was the best way to combine some of the things I love the most about surgery, which is um, technical detail, um, applied anatomy, um, and honestly, just a challenge. Um, you know, there, there aren't many machines that are going to be taking over um, what hand surgeons do. Uh, So that, to me, uh, was a nice combination of things. Mm
1: -hmm. Awesome. So I know you have a lot of interests and specialties. Uh, Can we start off talking about double crush? Can you kind of clarify what that means, double crush?
0: So it's this concept where if a nerve is compressed in one area, it is more likely to be compressed either downstream or upstream. And we know that when a nerve is compressed or injured, there is a disruption of the flow of nutrients back and forth, um, both going away from the brain and the spinal cord and back towards the brain and the spinal cord. So the most common example I think that we see is patients with um, some cervical root issues. Mm -hmm. So say they have a pinched pinched disc or they have a really tight foramen in their neck and one of their cervical roots, uh, for example, C5 or C6 uh, in uh, in one setting, Um, are compressed and you have arthritis there. It's an ongoing compression. and They eventually may have some particular symptoms, Um, but then all of a sudden they develop carpal tunnel syndrome. And we know that, you know, if you trace back the median nerve, the median nerve is comprised of components from the lateral cord and the medial cord. And it's that lateral cord contribution to the median nerve that supplies the sensation to the radial side of the digits. And that is an area that overlaps with the C5 and C6 Uh, radicular distribution for sensation. Mm -hmm. And if you trace that lateral cord back, it really comes from the upper trunk, which comes from the C5 and C6 nerve roots. So if there is some ongoing compression at the C5 or C6 nerve roots, there's going to be some disruption in the flow going from the cervical spine, going all the way out to the peripheral nerves and eventually the median nerve. And then that median nerve may be more prone to compression um, and then, if the patient, you know, happens to go through kind of the repetitive motions or the sleeping postures where you have wrists and fingers flexed, all that kind of stuff, that nerve then has a, suffered a double crush or a second mm-hmm. hit, and that disruption of nutrient flow and disruption of signal conduction can oftentimes lead to what we now call double
1: crush syndrome. Okay, so the person that gets diagnosed with carpal tunnel could have some cervical issues. So how do you recognize when there's both of them going on? If they come in and people like, oh, they have symptoms of carpal tunnel, they get diagnosed with carpal tunnel, what makes you think, oh, I, I better check proximally? Or is that just part of your routine?
0: I think my, my phobia as a peripheral nerve specialist and as a hand surgeon is that I'm going to miss something just because I'm not familiar with um, the, the diagnosis or with the treatment of a condition. So just because I'm not a spine surgeon, I'm worried I'm gonna miss something in the C-spine. Or because um, I'm not a shoulder surgeon or a, really a general orthopedist anymore, um, I may miss some shoulder pathology that's causing some, um, some weakness, uh, for example. So say I'm thinking it's an axillary nerve palsy and there's an uh, inability to elevate the arm. Maybe it's just a, a chronic rotator cuff tear. That kind of stuff. So I'm always thinking about my insecurities and you know the things that I'm not looking for in specific because I don't treat them because I don't have something I can offer that patient. So I always want to make sure I'm not missing that kind of thing. Um, and then there are sometimes giveaway symptoms. I mean, if you even ask patients about soreness in the neck, you know, aside from the kind of catch-all trapezial soreness that everybody has, um, if they tell you about radicular type symptoms, um, that's clue number one. And it doesn't take very long to do an assessment of. Um, uh, of your cervical spine. I mean, so a Sperling's test, you know, as you probably heard when we were talking about it on the other podcast, it has pretty poor sensitivity and specificity, um, but it is something. Uh, and then you just kind of march down the chain. I mean, for me, it's easy to check C5, C6, and C7 through a combination of checking the shoulder and the elbow and the wrist flexors. Um, and that doesn't add much to my exam as long as you make it somewhat systematic. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that tips me off when I see patients, and this isn't quite common, but painless weakness is not something you see often. And when, as a hand surgeon, when you see painless weakness, um, you really should start to think about C-spine. And and of course I say hand surgeons, I really mean our hand therapy colleagues as well. Mm -hmm. Anybody that's treating anybody with upper extremity pathology. Um, Because as you know, um, nerves, and when I talk to patients, I tell them nerves basically have three functions, um, motor signals, sensory, and pain. And oftentimes when patients have nerve pathology like carpal tunnel, or cubital tunnel, or something like that, they're going to have two out of the three. They're either going to have paresthesias, they're going to have motor weakness, sensory loss, or all three. But it's when you see painless weakness when you really need to start to worry either about something that is um, in the cervical spine or in the upper motor neuron system um, because you don't want to miss that. Um, It's less common to have painless weakness with like an isolated cervical root or something like that but it is just something to look for. Mm -hmm.
1: If, if it's missed, what would be the ramification?
0: Well, you could end up with various surgeries to treat, um, you know, uh, you know, carpal tunnel or cubital tunnel or something like that. Um, and the, you know, unfortunately you put a patient through a surgery, they're not going to get the type of, uh, relief that you and the patient were hoping for. You probably put them through um, you know, aside from, you know, the time off of work, et cetera, the, you know, the social cost of having surgery, uh, you probably put them through some therapy and, and now they're still left looking for a solution to the problem that they came to you for originally, which, you know, is not ideal for anybody. And then psychologically that takes a hit on, on, uh, on you, but also more importantly on the patient.
1: Right. So, with our double crush patients, they may still end up deciding with you to have surgery, like for the example of the carpal tunnel and a proximal issue, because you can have the coinciding diagnosis. So, the relief they get from a surgery might be enough benefit to justify it, even if they're still having proximal issues. Is that true? Yeah,
0: yeah absolutely. I mean, you know, to me, uh, it's more about identifying the issue ahead of time so that you can counsel the patient appropriately. I I'm I'm fairly certain that pretty much anybody, if you ask them honestly, if they have, you know, a uh, C5 or C6 uh, issue and they have carpal tunnel syndrome, you're going to take care of the carpal tunnel syndrome, even if that involves having a carpal tunnel surgery Mm -hmm. Uh, prior to having having an ACDF. And that's no offense to my spine uh, surgeon colleagues who are excellent surgeons. Just if I had to pick one out of the two, I'm going to take the one that has a much uh, lower uh, lower morbidity to recover from, and a m- much more benef- beneficial uh, uh, benefit to risk ratio. Um, but if I if I say to a patient, you know, I think you're going to do perfectly well from this. I expect you to have near complete symptom relief, and I leave out the fact that you may have some cervical spine issues. If they have uh, some kind of symptom recurrence in the future, they're going to be upset. Uh, so I try to tell them about that, you know, early in advance. You know, um, I am somewhat sparing in whom I um, do nerve studies on, but the nerve studies to me for a patient who I'm treating for carpal tunnel syndrome is mainly to evaluate um, either severity of the carpal tunnel syndrome or um, concomitant disease, whether it's ulnar nerve pathology, which we see a lot of overlap, but it's usually either um, cervical spine issues or even thoracic outlet.
1: That's That was actually the topic I wanted to discuss next is thoracic outlet syndrome. Can you expand a little bit more for therapists what that is and what your opinion is on it?
0: It's funny you say opinion because everybody has a different opinion on thoracic outlet. It's, almost like, it's almost like religion. Like you, you don't really want to question people's belief <laughs> on it. Uh, I just look at it as another point of compression. So I think of it as another couple of areas where you can have compressive neuropathy. Um, so the main areas, you know, for after you exit the neural foramen, um, the upper trunk, uh, and, uh, you know, upper trunk and lower trunk mainly can get compressed at the, uh, superclavicular area. So the upper trunk has a point of compression at a kind of herb's point as it's, um, passing between the anterior and middle scalenes. And in the same area there, if you tuck a little bit more, uh, a little lower, a little more cephalad, excuse me, caudal. Um, and then you're at the point where that lower trunk is really emerging and taking that kind of upward turn. And there's some tight bands of fascia in there that can cause compression. And depending on who you talk to, things like a cervical rib or a first rib can also cause compression there. Um a thoracic outlet has also been described as you know the area after um the the plexus passes uh behind the clavicle and it's deep to the pectoralis minor. Um, and and I think any discussion about thoracic outlet should include whether it's, you know, quote, neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome or a vascular thoracic outlet syndrome. And the vascular kinds can be arterial or venous. And, you know, I think a lot of what we do and how we treat patients depends on how we were trained. Uh, not Mm -hmm. only our specific specialties, be it hand therapy, hand surgery, uh, shoulder surgery, vascular surgery, thoracic surgery, neurosurgery. Uh, we, because there is no true consensus on thoracic outlet. Um, you know, I think a lot of us still rely on um, how we were trained and so sort of the dogma that's out there. And I think most hand surgeons and peripheral nerve people will believe that more often than not, it's neurogenic thoracic outlet, meaning that it's nerves that are the issue. Um, but I think that there are a fair number of people that would argue that it is uh, more likely than not a vascular issue. Um, so I, I mean that's thoracic outlet in a, a very long-winded way. Um, I don't know if there's an easier way to summarize it.
1: I I think it is a, a very hard thing for us to really grasp because there's so much conflicting information on it. So as as therapists, you know, a patient oftentimes is just sent with thoracic outlet and there's no treatment really written down, or, you know, they don't even have a diagnosis of thoracic outlet, they say arm pain. So do you have any tips on like assessment that you utilize to do your assessment for patients that you believe are thoracic outlet patients? Well, I mean,
0: to me in my practice, because of the, I hate to say somewhat negative connotation that now comes with the condition, um, it is still a diagnosis of exclusion. Uh, not one that I'm shy to make, but I, I really make sure there's nothing else going on. Um, so similar to the principles we've talked about before, I mean, it's really looking at the C-spine, making sure there isn't, um, and that the C-spine is not the driving factor. Now, you know, we talk about double crush. You can't have double crush with the C-spine and then the thoracic outlet, um, et cetera. But um, I check the C-spine and then I check and make sure it's not a known peripheral nerve thing. So your common things being, you know, cubital, tunnel. Carpal tunnel, even radial tunnel, for example, mm-hmm. um, and some of the lesser known things like quadrangular space and um, um, compression of the suprascapular nerve at the notch or at um, you know further down. So, I really try to make sure it's not one of those. I try to be as good as I can about making sure it's not something that's like subacromial impingement or rotator cuff pathology or glenohumeral arthritis, adhesive capsulitis. Because a lot of times, um, you know, these patients. Pick up diagnoses along the way. And sometimes, if somebody dubs in thoracic outlet, people aren't willing to look at some of the other stuff and just pass them on to the next patient uh, or to the next, uh, to the next provider. Um, so, you know, once I've excluded all of those things, I try to be pretty specific about how I evaluate the thoracic outlet. Um, I do check pulses and I check pulses in different positions with the arm down and with the arm elevated, with looking away. And I have not found that to be a very uh, fruitful examination. Although I know a lot of people will tell you that is a mainstay examination. The people that come to my practice, that I just don't see a lot of um, vascular pathology, or at least arterial um, type pathology. Um, so the other thing I'll do is more of a provocative maneuver, and probably that's because I was trained by peripheral nerve surgeons. So. Mm-hmm. You know, I'll do a compressive type test. Um, you know, at the um, uh, the emergence of the upper trunk between the anterior and middle scalene, then I'll walk my way a little bit uh, further down, uh, a little a little further caudal, and try to palpate the lower trunk as it's emerging to see if that provokes similar types of radiating shooting symptoms. Um, not necessarily where my my uh, finger or thumb is because it's an uncomfortable place, but more radiating distally. To replicate
1: the, do, the symptoms that they're describing, is that what your goal is? Exactly,
0: exactly. Because okay. you know, a lot of the stuff we do in our examination maneuvers is uncomfortable by definition. Right. You know, we're, we're jamming our thumbs and fingers into pressure points and crooks of elbows and all that kind of stuff, and tapping really hard on people. Um, so, and the other thing I'll do is I'll, I'll feel the coracoid, and then I'll just uh, move a little bit over and try to you know uh, get to the area where the pec minor tendon is and push down in that area and see if that reproduces any sort of distally radiating symptoms as well. Um, You know, in terms of, you know, how to differentiate TOS from other forms of pathology, I do like to look at, um, you know, the sensory distribution from the medial brachial and medial antibrachial cutaneous nerves, because that can help you differentiate thoracic outlet um, uh, from things like carpal and cubital tunnel syndrome that is manifesting a little more distal. And oftentimes TOS patients will have concomitant uh, cubital tunnel, for example. Um, So it is just trying to figure out how much of the patient's constellation of symptoms is coming from the TOS, is coming from carpal cubital tunnel. And if I think I can, um, what I love the most is taking the combination TOS carpal cubital patient and turning them into a carpal cubital patient, because that I have much more control over, that I have a much better sense of predictability on outcomes, et cetera.
1: So you don't typically do surgical procedures for TOS.
0: It's not my go-to, um, and again, that's how it was. Uh, that's a, a byproduct of how it was trained. You know, I think there are a lot of surgeons um, across the country that have a much lower threshold to operate on patients mm-hmm. with thoracic outlet syndrome. Um, you know, I I don't love that because I think there are a lot of times if you do the right therapy um, and get them to um, a therapist that they can build a good relationship with and um, who is uh, doing the right things with them, oftentimes you can reverse some of those uh, really uh, aggravating TOS symptoms um, and subsequently convert them to somebody who can be treated a little more readily with carpal and cubital tunnel, whether that's with therapy or with surgery.
1: That's excellent. So your go-to treatment for our TOS patients is therapy
0: yeah and i I think some of my patients who um are traveling from far and come to see me and are frustrated because they've done quote therapy um for three months, four months already I have them you know i I'm fortunate enough to have um a couple of wonderful hand therapists in my clinic routine who see patients with me, and um that I think has been a true blessing for my practice. Um, And I just have, I have them audit the therapy that the patients have been doing. And if it sounds what they've been doing is legit, then I give the patients credit for, um, for having that therapy done. But if it sounds like, you know, they haven't been doing things that they're supposed to do, then I say, Hey, you know, I know you're frustrated. I know I'm making you do this again, but you know, I'd like you to do some therapy in a very specific way. And these are the reasons why.
1: It makes great sense. I mean, there's many therapies that are performed routinely with patients that aggravate their symptoms more than relieve it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that's like another example of that is like nerve glides. Like I think nerve glides when, um, when taught incorrectly or and or practiced incorrectly by the patients um, can just be a detriment. Um, and can really hurt patients and they'll lose faith in that important therapist-patient relationship.
1: Exactly. That's a great reminder for therapists to understand the tension and the nerve and the length and all the things that we do that can facilitate improvement, but then there's so many things that we can also do that cause more detriment. So it's really helpful that you reviewed that with us today. And I was gonna ask you a little bit about nerves as far as like nerve repairs and reconstructions and transfers. Can you talk a little bit about some of those things? I know that's a whole lot of stuff in one sentence, but just anything that kind of comes to mind that you can give us some tips or learn a little bit about what's out there currently.
0: Well, I mean, I think that there's a big emphasis now when we repair nerves um, and rightfully so to avoid putting tension on nerve repairs. Um, and because we know that, you know, nerve repairs that are repaired under excessive tension are more likely to have, um, ischemia at the repair sites. So even if they don't rupture, um, they are more likely to have ischemia and create scar and then the nerves obviously not going to regenerate across that. I think probably the biggest thing, you know, when, when your colleagues and you as therapists are talking to the surgeons about the cases is ask the details. Um, because, you know, or ask the surgeon, you know, to volunteer some of these things by asking for an operative note, et cetera. But, you know, for example, I did a nerve transfer uh, earlier today. And when I was doing the coaptation for the nerve transfer, I pointed out to the resident. I was like, look, we're doing this with the wrist and extension and the fingers and extension. This is the maximum tension, potential tension for this nerve coaptation. Um, You know, I think there's still a possibility of it rupturing post-op, which is why we're going to protect it. But at the very least, I know that I put it in, I sewed it in in a position that, you know, is the most uh, vulnerable for the patient. Um, And, you know, I I do specific things when I'm um, asking our therapist to help us uh, rehab these. um, And I'll tell them exactly like, look, this is a position I sewed it in. Um, This is the position I want you to avoid. Um, I think it might be okay if something were to happen, but why take the risk? Let's wait until this nerve coaptation is really sticky and and things are regenerated sufficiently, which is usually at least a few weeks. If it's nerve graft, you're waiting longer because you have that second coaptation site. Um, But I love it when a therapist wants to know the details of the surgery. That's just a good indicator because that means that they're really into what they're doing and they want to make sure that we're working together on this. Um, And you know, I think just in general, the better communication um, between surgeons and therapists, um, about some of the interop details. And then I conversely want to know what's going on, uh, in therapy because, you know, you and your colleagues are the best sets of eyes and ears that we have. We see the patients so much more than us. They open up so much more to you guys than they do to me. You know, they'll come in and, and put on a good face for me when I comes when I see them in the office, but you know, they'll, they'll tell a completely different story. So I, you know, when patients ask me why I'm making them come back to, um, to our therapy group, it's because they know me and they communicate with me with me regularly. Um, and while you know I see there's so much value in being able to get care close to home. For some of this kind of higher stake stuff, I really try to emphasize you know the, the importance of that relationship. That's probably a little more than just about nerves
1: than you wanted though. No, that's that's <laughs> so wonderful and helpful with the importance of the communication between the therapist and the surgeon. And you know, a lot of therapists aren't as fortunate enough to have that type of relationship with their surgeons, but the more they can connect with them, the better opportunity they have for better outcomes for the patients. So yeah, I no, I, I've,
0: I've been very lucky. I realized that. I mean, I think that was part of the way that the department, you know, I'm in academics and the way that the department was built was to have therapists in clinic, um, you know, for, you know, to establish that collegial relationship. And I think it's beneficial for all parties involved. And um, I've had the good fortune of having our hand therapists come in on some of our wide awake surgeries for things like contractor release and, um, you know, tendon repairs and, and that kind of stuff. And that's really helpful. Um, because, you know, I can say, okay, I did my part. Here's what it looks like, you know, in surgery. Here's why I'm telling you, you know, I think these are the things that we should be protecting. But what do you think, um, you know, uh, from your perspective, you can do And if the patient's awake, it's even better because they see us communicating and the patient can be in on the game. So, you know, that is something that I think you're going to see more and more. And I think especially, you know, the kind of digital communication we have today, uh, will facilitate that. I mean, you know, uh, with patient consent and stuff, we've done FaceTime from the operating room. Um, with the therapist to say, okay, here, hey, here's what we got, Um, you know, and everybody kind of likes that.
1: I know, I love that. The wide awake is just awesome, and when I had that chat with Dr. Lalonde, it was really eye-opening to the extent that the communication just changes the, the playing field so that these patients really can say, I can do it. They can make a full fist even after they saw that their hand was all their fingers were straight. Now they can bend them all, or so it's it's really a game changer at that point.
0: Yeah, it adds a whole psychological element to the recovery too. Um, you know, and I think that empowering you know whatever we can do to empower patients is, is going to be to our benefit. Um, you know, so while it, it certainly disrupts um, and changes the workflow a bit in the operating room, I think it's I think it's worth it for the right case
1: so with the with the wide awake and specifically with nerves that's quite similar to the tendons then as far as you're actually having them go through the full realm in which you would want us to do in therapy of motion is to assess that the nerve isn't under too much tension basically
0: yeah i mean you know i, I still hesitate in my personal practice to do a lot of nerve stuff wide awake um i guess i kind of veered off uh, off topic there but you know i think that um more you know kind of when I communicate with our therapists, I can say, you know, here's what we saw in surgery, and you know, sometimes if they're in the operating room, it's even easier. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times, say for example, you're doing like a combination of flexor tendon, digital nerve, that kind of thing. It, initially, it's the it's more and more it's the nerve that's going to hold you back um, from kind of going through some of the more aggressive rehab protocols. Um, so, it, say for example, I, I did a, if I did a flexor tendon zone two, and I did a digital nerve. And whoever was rehabbing the patient didn't see that I did a digital nerve and was, you know, um, a little more aggressive than I wanted. That, that obviously isn't going to work out the way that anybody wants.
1: How quickly do you have them move with nerve just straight repairs? We're not talking grafts or transfers, just a, a, a nerve repair that has little to no tension. So you do want
0: some gliding there. Um, you know, so I think that, say, for example, uh, we repaired a, say so we did a primary repair of the median nerve in the forum. Um, say it's distal third of the forearm, um, you've got you know, flexor tendons, um, but proximal to the carpal tunnel. Um, I typically, uh, like I mentioned earlier, will um, check and make sure that the repair doesn't gap and certainly doesn't rupture if you have the wrist and fingers in extension. Um, and if that is okay, then what I'll do is initially have the patient in the um, a dorsal blocking split that I put on in the operating room. And, you know, when they come back in about seven to 10 days, um, I'll have our therapist make them a dorsal blocking splint, sometimes with the hinge, depending on what the um, what the repair looks like. Um, and most of the times it's going to be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want them moving their fingers. I think finger extension with the wrist in neutral would be totally fine from the get go. Um, and that gives us a little bit of gliding as well, obviously, because you know that the digital nerves are going to, um, uh, when those fingers move, that's going to help the nerve glide a little bit too. Um and eventually I'll, I'll incorporate a little bit more of wrist extension. I'll probably avoid maximum wrist extension for at least six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the very least, you know, I, I don't ever find these patients complaining of a stiff wrist because they because they haven't had true wrist pathology, they're not going to get a stiff wrist. They're going to stretch out over time and it's not like they had an intraarticular injury and they're at risk for, um, for, for capsular adhesions and that kind of thing. Um, but I, I still protect it a little bit with, with the dorsal blocking splint, um, and with a little bit of a hinge. Um, and I do like tenodesis as well. So you're getting wrist flexion too. Um, so that's going to help you, uh, keep that nerve gliding as well.
1: Excellent. So when it comes to nerve misses, what are the biggest misses like with nerve pathology that you feel that therapists might be benefited by hearing from you today? Yeah, and
0: I, I don't think it's necessarily, and I know how you phrase the question, uh, but I want to make sure everybody knows I don't think it's nerve therapy, I don't think it's therapists that are missing this It's kind of everybody. Everybody, um, yes, yes, I agree. So I, I think it's, you know, um concomitant carpal cubital. Um, and then also, you know, what we talked about earlier, double crush. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that not everybody believes in TOS, so I'm not gonna, you know, pretend like uh I'll be able to change minds, but I, I do think it's a valid diagnosis. Um and I, I think TOS when indicated appropriately can be incredibly successful in terms of a surgical release. Um, so I didn't really get a chance to talk about that much earlier, but, um, you know, for patients who have gone through appropriate therapy and uh, to me, I like a lot of diagnostic blocks, um, to make sure that, you know, truly, you know, this is an area where we're going to make a difference. Um, a, a release for TOS can provide substantial surgical relief. Now I'm on the camp of, you know, on the, in the camp of not, doing the more aggressive first rib, cervical rib resection kind of things. Um, and I, I purely treat it like an, an, a peripheral nerve issue and then release the tight bands of fascia that might be uh, compressing. Um, but I think that's a surgery that, that's a condition and also a surgery that both of them may get a bit of a bad rap um, because of people's prior experiences with it. hmm
1: So that's a lot of information that we've, gathered here in this wonderful talk, and I would love to be able to share with the listeners any additional resources that we could learn more about nerves, nerve injuries, therapeutic intervention, surgical intervention, anything that you could recommend for them? Well,
0: you know, I think um, what, what I've enjoyed the most is honestly uh, going to courses where both surgeons and therapists are presenting together. So I, I think that could be, well, this year, um, the American Society for Surgery in the Hand and the ASHT are um, having a joint meeting, which I think is going to be really interesting. And, and to me, I'm going to be paying more attention to um, to what some of our therapy colleagues say, because that's just stuff I'm not typically exposed to. Um, and I, I learn a lot when I see a therapist presenting, um, particularly about stuff that I think I know well, but I always pick up new tricks. And the other meeting for that that's really good is the... Um, The AHS uh, meeting, um, uh, which is usually combined with the ASPN. But I I remember seeing a therapist that I worked with a lot um, in in New York City from from Hospital for Professional Surgery, and she was presenting on therapy for TOS, and I learned quite a bit there. So, I mean, and this was this past January, so I I think those are always great resources. Um, You know, your standard textbooks are, are often good, but I don't think our textbooks are multidisciplinary enough. And I think that at some point that would be an opportunity to write. A multidisciplinary textbook um, because it's usually like a therapist is a co author in a, in a surgery book or a surgeon is a co author in a therapy book. And I really think a true multidisciplinary text would be really beneficial. So maybe an idea for the future. Um, and yeah, we got a podcast. So, you know, if you ever want to take a listen, uh, one of my partners um, at WashU, Chuck Goldfarm, and I have started doing a podcast trying to follow in your footsteps um, from the hand surgery perspective. Um, And you'll get a different take. It's certainly uh, relatively surgeon focused, um, but I hope that uh, at least some of the discussions will be educational for anybody that wants to listen.
1: It is wonderful. And it is called The Upper Hand. And I have enjoyed all the episodes so far. You do talk about carpal tunnel and a couple of them that you've already done. So people that want to learn more about what you were just talking about, evaluating the upper extremity and carpal tunnel and double crush. You touch on all of that in those two episodes.
0: You're too kind. Um, You know, I think that doing the podcast, I've told some of my friends and colleagues is either going to be the best or the worst thing I've ever done professionally. (laughs) I'm sure you're feeling some of that as well. Um,
1: I love your podcast. I will tell you, that is how we had connected everyone who's listening. I came across this amazing podcast and I was like, wow a hand surgeon doing what the hand therapy people are doing. And I had had to meet you and I am so honored to have spent time with you and thank you so much for your time. I'm, I've really enjoyed it and learned a lot and look forward to listening to every episode. And for the people listening to this, if you didn't catch that, I I am going to have a short info sheet with a summary of this wonderful visit. And so that you can have a link to the upper hand. It's very cool to meet you and enjoy this time together and we'll have to do it again sometime.
0: That would be a lot of fun. I'd appreciate it. And once Chuck and I get our act together, we'll have to have you on ours as well. Uh, congratulations to you. I think that the podcast uh, has obviously been a great success and it's, it's serving a role and, and filling a need for, um, uh, for anybody interested in the upper extremity. So congratulations on all of your wonderful successes.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. And we will see you again soon.
0: Sounds good. Thanks a lot.
1: For anyone wanting the link to Dr. D's podcast and Twitter account, please email info at handtherapy.com and just simply put Dr. D in the subject line or in the body of the email. And please don't forget to leave our podcast a five-star review and share it with your colleagues. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to
0: Hand Therapy Heroes. Please subscribe and leave a five-star review. Visit handtherapy.com and register for our newsletter containing free content and courses about our
1: fascinating hands. Hold hands today for a more functional tomorrow.